Okay, well, good morning and welcome to you brave souls that are out here on this chilly morning, and um, thank you so much for, for coming out. Uh, a couple of things before we get started on our lesson today. Um, for children, hopefully you have um, the outline or the handout. For children, I, there are a number of words uh, that you will hear in the lesson. You hear Jesus Christ, born again, sinner, believe, and cross. When you hear those words, please put a tally mark down. And after the lesson, after our Sunday school lesson, uh, you can go to Pastor Mike and he has a prize for you. But also for children that can recite John 3.16, we're talking probably for some of the younger children, if you can recite John 3.16 to Pastor Mike, he also has a prize for you. For adults, I have two um, books uh, called Living Life Backwards that Pastor Mike mentioned last week. If you can please tell me, if you can come up to me after the lesson, let me know who the author of Ecclesiastes, or who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, if you can tell me that, I will give you a free copy of Living Life Backwards, okay? So children, please don't miss your opportunity there. Marked on those words when you hear it, Jesus Christ, born again, sinner, believe, and, and cross. All right, well, with that, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time. Thank you, Father, for uh, this beautiful day, beautiful morning you've given to us. thought it would be a little bit more chilly, Father, but you've, give us, you've given us warm weather this morning. I thank you so much for that. Thank you for all of those that are out this morning and those who are watching. I pray you would bless them, encourage them, and help us, Father, as we look into your word today. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, today people are interested in knowing how to obtain salvation or eternal life. You know, in fact, if you Google the question, how can I obtain eternal life, you will find 84 million, you're probably going to do this right now, right? 84 million, 100,000 hits on eternal life or obtaining salvation. Now, be careful because there are some unbiblical ways out there on how to obtain eternal life. In fact, a Pew Research Center poll also finds that roughly one-third of Americans, 30%, believe that whether one achieves eternal life is determined by what a person believes, with nearly as many, 29%, saying eternal life depends on one's actions. One in ten Americans say the key to obtaining eternal life lies in a combination of belief and actions. The remaining one-third of the public says that something else is the key to eternal life, they don't know what leads to eternal life, or they don't believe in eternal life. Well, wow, when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we really have our work cut out for us, don't we? We want to make sure that we are sharing the gospel at every occasion about Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. If you remember the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verses 70 to 27, he asked Jesus about inheriting eternal life. And in the end, remember what happened? He walked away disappointed he did not receive eternal life. Now, unfortunately, today, many people like the rich young ruler have settled for their own self-righteousness and in vain try to pave their way for them to go to heaven. And as you all know, our Lord Jesus Christ emphasized on multiple occasions, both in his public and private ministry, how one can have salvation and that is by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. When we speak about the cross, we think about the instrument where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, and that is so true. 
However, the word cross embodies all that had occurred in God's marvelous plan of salvation, namely Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4 tells us. And I call that those verses the gospel in a nutshell. But this morning in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, kind of our main text this morning, along with verses before and after these verses, we're going to witness Jesus' private but powerful and redemptive conversation with Nicodemus regarding God's marvelous plan of salvation that culminates in the cross. So before we do that, let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 to 18 to kind of get a context of what's happening. In John chapter 3, starting with verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4 says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said again that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him." And in verse 18, it says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus tells Nicodemus that three actions must occur. Three actions must occur before a sinner can obtain eternal life. Well, the first action that must occur before a person can have eternal life, and if you have your notes, your handout, a person must be born again. A person must be born again. Let's read verses 1 and 2, which provides both an introduction and an inquiry from Nicodemus. Verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, as we see in the text, was a Pharisee, a member of the main and powerful ruling party of Israel called the Sanhedrin. He was very influential, and in fact, in verse 10, he was the, or one of the elite teachers in all of Israel. Verse 2 says that Nicodemus came at night to speak to Jesus. 
Now, there's really no spiritual meaning or significance in Nicodemus' clandestine meeting with Jesus at night. He probably didn't want to be looked upon with disfavor by his fellow Sanhedrin members and put out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus like the former blind man was in John chapter 9, verse 22. But the important point is not that, Jesus, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, but the fact that he came at all, right? To speak to Jesus about salvation and eternal life, which he thought was you could get by through good works like the rich young ruler did. When Nicodemus was intrigued and wanted to know who Jesus was, and in fact, in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, using a very respectful term, he says, we, the Sanhedrin, know that you have come from God as a teacher. Now, they accepted Jesus as a teacher, though Jesus did not go through any formal rabbinical training, but they didn't accept Jesus Christ as God. He says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Speaking about the miracles that Jesus performed a few verses ago in John chapter 2, verse 23. But notice in verse 3 that Jesus was not interested in, in talking about his past miracles that he had just performed. Jesus, shown his omniscience, read Nicodemus' heart like an open book and went right after his sinful, legalistic heart and wanted to transform him. So in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Nicodemus responded to Jesus and said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? And Nicodemus here knew that he was just using figurative language, and you see that used a lot in the Scriptures. But notice that Jesus mentioned the phrase or the concept of being born again in verses 3 to 8 four times. He mentions the thought of being born again. And the phrase born again is a spiritual term meaning born from above or regeneration, which is an act initiated by the Holy Spirit where he made you alive and turned a light on in your heart because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. Well, Jesus continues to solidify this concept of the Holy Spirit regenerating sinners in verse 8 when the Holy Spirit is compared to the wind that blows to and fro wherever it desires. And in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? When Nicodemus' heart was in turmoil and simply couldn't believe what Jesus was speaking about regarding spiritual rebirth. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus being the elite teacher in Israel. There's an article there before teacher. He, is, he was one of the elite teachers in all of Israel. He should have known and understood what Jesus was speaking about when he talked about being born again. Well, the first section that must occur before a person can have eternal life is that a person must be born again. The second action that must occur before a person can have eternal life is that a person must accept what Jesus says. A person must accept what Jesus says. In verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus' belief problem wasn't that he didn't have as a source the Old Testament scriptures. He did. He did, in fact, and he was highly educated in those books. Well, Liam Morris says, Testimony or witness does not point to opinions that may be debated, but to objective fact. 
Jesus is not hazarding a guess, but telling Nicodemus about the things of which he has perfect knowledge. Now, Jesus Christ is absolute truth, isn't he? He is the truth. And we know the reason why it was so hard for Nicodemus to understand this, right? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But a natural man does not what? Does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are, spir- they are spiritually appraised. Well, Jesus continues in verse 12 and says, If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus rebuked Nicodemus' self-righteousness that kept him from understanding and accepting heavenly realities, such as who Jesus was. Not just a teacher from, sent from God, but the Word of God manifested in the flesh, as John chapter 1, verse 14 says. And also not understanding the new birth or being born again. Well, what two factors contributed to Nicodemus' unbelief? But John MacArthur says there were two sides to Nicodemus' unbelief. He said, intellectually, while he acknowledged Jesus to be a teacher sent from God, in chapter 3, verse 2, he was unwilling to accept him as God. Spiritually, MacArthur says, he was very reluctant to admit that he himself was a helpless sinner, since that was unthinkable for proud members of the Pharisees, the self-righteous, self-confessed religious elite of Israel. Well, little did Nicodemus know or understand yet that Jesus was going to die on a cross soon for his sins. So the second action that must occur before a sinner can have eternal life is that a person must accept what Jesus says. Now, this brings us to the third and, and the last action that must occur before a person can have eternal life, and we'll spend a majority of our time here, is that a person must believe and look at the cross. A person must believe and look at the cross. Jesus said in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The title Son of Man was used in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that spoke about Jesus being the exalted one and prophesied Messiah. In fact, one commentator said, Son of Man appears some 80 times in the gospel. And Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designated title. Yes, we hear about Jesus being the Son of God, and He is. But His favorite title was that He was the Son of Man. And why? Because Son of Man speaks to Jesus' humanity. Jesus wants to identify Himself with the humanity that He created, regardless of their sinful past. So Jesus is both God and man. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, a very familiar verse to us all, says, Who, speaking about Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Well, Jesus says in this verse, he continues on, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven the Son of Man. Jesus was saying that he is the only true source of what heaven was like. And we hear a lot of stories, a lot of books are written about someone going to heaven, seeing a bright light and everything like that. But Jesus is the only source of one going to heaven and would be able to tell us what heaven is like. One commentator said it would be very difficult for someone who had never been to heaven to speak of heavenly things. Can anybody here speak about heaven? No, we can't, right? 
only what, what, what we get from the scriptures. He says this was not a problem for Jesus because he had descended from heaven. Heaven had been his home for eternity. Thus, he had considerable experience with heavenly things. MacArthur again says this verse contradicts other religious systems claim to special revelation from God. Jesus insisted that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return and talk about heavenly things. And MacArthur does mention 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, as he talks about the Apostle Paul going up to heaven, right, and coming back. MacArthur says only he had, so we got Jesus, his permanent abode in heaven prior to his incarnation, and therefore only he has the true knowledge regarding heavenly wisdom. And he gives a reference of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4 there. But Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But then in verse 14, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now notice in this verse that Jesus was doing two things. First, Jesus authenticated the Old Testament scriptures by mentioning this account with Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness. And secondly, Jesus provided an illustration or a type or a foreshadowing, you'll hear, you'll hear that word mentioned, of his pending death on the cross, even for Nicodemus. Jesus was gracious to Nicodemus by explaining in a simple way the path of salvation using the illustration of a serpent on a pole. Now, Nicodemus knew this story, so the question is, why didn't he understand the truth? Why didn't he understand what Jesus was saying? Well, what Old Testament verses was Jesus referring to when he spoke, about, spoke to Nicodemus about Moses being lifted up, uh, Moses lifting up the serpent? Well, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 and 9, Jesus revisits an incident which happened to Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So let's take a look at that. Just turn with me to Numbers very quickly. Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 and 9. Let's take a look at that. Let's read those verses to give us the context. In Numbers chapter 21, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 says, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Verse 4 says, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people came and became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, and he said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in a wilderness, where there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food? Verse 6 says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And verse 9 says, And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he 
lived. In verses 1 to 2, the king of Arad, just as a commentary, uh, heard that Israel was coming, fought and defeated Israel. Israel made a vow to the Lord and said that if the Lord would deliver them against the Canaanites, they would destroy their cities. In verse 3, the Lord heard Israel's prayer. Israel defeated the Canaanites, destroyed their cities, and called the place Hormah, as we just read. In verses 4 and 5, as Israel was on their 40-year journey in the wilderness to the promised land, they sinned by being impatient, complained, and spoke against God and Moses. Now, the amazing but sad thing was their rebellion was right after God had delivered Israel. He answered their prayer, and after he did that, they started to do what? They started to complain against God. Can you imagine that? So in verse 5, they complained, and Israel said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is, they said there was no food and no water. And I guess we really can't point the finger at the nation of Israel, right? Because how many times do we complain to the Lord, right? We complain many times. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Do all things without what? Without grumbling and complaining, right? Something I have to learn myself. But what was the result of Israel's complaining to God and Moses. Well, verse 6 says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. God infested Israel's camp with venomous snakes as his judgment was upon them because of their constant complaining about food and water. Verse 7 says, Israel came to Moses, repented, and said that they had sinned against God and begged Moses to ask God to remove the fiery serpents from them so Moses interceded on behalf of Israel and spoke to the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 says, We see the Lord shown grace and mercy to rebellious Israel, told Moses to make a replica of a fiery bronze serpent and place a serpent above the camp on top of a pole. For those who had been bit by the serpent in order to be healed and live, all they had to do was look up at the serpent on the pole. By looking at the serpent on the pole, the snake bitten person was cured because he had acknowledged his unrighteousness, his unworthiness, guilt, and expressed his faith in God's forgiveness and power to heal. So we see even there the picture of repentance from some in Israel. And when they did that, they were healed from the snake bite. Their lack of repentance for some of them from sin and unbelief in God caused many of them to die in their sins. But Jesus wasn't shown Nicodemus that salvation was easy, but humble repentance of sin is needed for salvation. In fact, one commentator said Jesus was challenging this great teacher of the law to acknowledge that he had been bitten by the great serpent Satan to come to the Lord for salvation. But Jesus continued in verse 14, and he says, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The word there, must, is critical because it states that Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross provided the necessary payment for sin to God. One commentator said this is Jesus' earliest recorded prediction of his death. The verb must is a strong term which speaks of the absolute necessity of the crucifixion, for without the crucifixion of Christ, there could be no new birth. So if Jesus Christ did not die on a cross for our sins, we would not be born again. And how sad would that be, right? Very sad. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we see here 
Christ's vicarious substitution, one in place of another, was, was actually prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 to 6, where it says, But he was pierced through for our, our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus Christ. And we thank God for that. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be what sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus Christ as if he were the one that sinned and poured his wrath and punishment upon us. We should have been on the cross, right? We should have been there. A lot of times I say that's a fair exchange, right? We get Jesus' 33 years of perfect living, right? And he gets our fill-in-the-blank years of sinful living, right? Fair exchange, right? Absolutely. And that's God's grace, right? That is God's grace. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation, as one commentator said, is Christ's sacrificial death on a cross, it satisfied the demands of God's justice, just appeasing his holy wrath against believers' sins. And in John chapter 19, verse 18, it says that the crossbeam that Jesus was nailed to would be lifted up and fastened to the vertical wooden pole where Christ would hang in painful agony in place of us. Well, J.C. Ryle said Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest and are at the length landed in glory. He says, it is true that we are sinners, but Christ has suffered for us. It is true that we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It is true that we are guilty debtors, but Christ has paid our debts with his own blood. This is the real gospel. This is the good news. On this, let us lean while we live. To this, let us cling when we die. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. The way to heaven is open for us to go and see God and talk with him anytime we desire. I mean, what an ultimate display, right, of God demonstrating his own agape love towards us as well. We were at Sinners Christ died for us, as Pastor Mike taught on last week, right? Thank God for his grace. But what about Christ's willingness to die on the cross for our sins? Was Christ coerced by God the Father to go to the cross to die for our sins? Well, Jesus, speaking about his life in John chapter 10, verse 18, says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. It was a very interesting pastor and author and lecturer, Mark Jones, in his book called Knowing Christ, provides this insight about Christ's willingness to die on a cross for sinners. He says there are two aspects regarding Christ's death that are of particular importance for us in our salvation. Christ's willingness to die through the Spirit and the acceptableness of his death in the eyes of the Father. He says, in short, the Father could not have accepted and delighted in Christ's death on behalf of sinners if he had not died willingly. We may content ourselves with knowing that the Father was as willing to accept Christ's sacrificial offering as Christ was willing to die. 
And God's willingness to accept us in Christ is no less true. Nor is he less willing to accept us than he was willing to accept the offering of his son. Nonetheless, he says Jesus came from heaven. He was not forced or coerced into action. He came willingly to seek and to save the lost, as Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says. The human will of Christ was always subject to and in perfect harmony with the divine will of the triune God. Isn't that great? You think about the harmony between the Trinity. What Stephen Sharnock says, his, Christ's will, was as free in consenting as his Father was in proposing. Then in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, what, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Puritan Thomas Watson comments about how having faith as believers conforms you to be more like Christ. Listen to what he says. It's really interesting. He says, faith changes the soul into the image of the object. It makes it like Christ. But faith looking on Christ transforms a man and turns him into his similitude. Looking on a bleeding Christ causing a soft, bleeding heart. Looking on a holy Christ causes a sanctity of heart. Looking on a humble Christ makes the soul humble. As a chameleon is changed into the color of that which it looks upon, so faith, looking on Christ, changes the Christian into the similitude of Christ. Isn't that great? You think about it? Great, great quote. Puritan John Owen said, The principal exercise of saving faith is to behold Christ in his person and his work. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of Christ's perseverance and what he did for us on the cross and because he did that, it should allow us to persevere as we go through the difficult trials that we face every single day in our lives. But Jesus on the cross is a believer's ultimate source of peace in troubling times. And we're living in troubling times today, right? Very troubling times. Well, Jesus Christ is our peace. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, He himself, Christ, is our peace. When well, verse 15, Jesus goes on and he says, So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Well, why was it so hard for the children of Israel to look up at the bronze serpent? Well, one word, unbelief. It was because of unbelief. They did not believe Moses' words from God on how they could receive both spiritual and physical healing. But the word whoever there in verse 15, I mean, what a word, right? What a word. That includes you and me. We are part of the whoever. Whoever is speaking about even the most vilest of sinners can come to Christ and be saved as they look at the cross of Christ. Well, what does it mean to believe in Christ? Was it accepting and affirming what Jesus says about himself, that he is God in the flesh? Genuine saving faith also shows a heart that is willing to obey his commandments. Now, as we saw in the Old Testament, the Israelites who were bit by the serpents were killed by not looking at their own selfish works of righteousness, but they believed God and obediently looked at the serpent raised high above the camp as God had commanded. What will a person who believes by faith alone in Jesus Christ receive? Well, salvation and eternal life. In, God, in John's gospel, eternal life is mentioned 15 times. 15 times eternal life is mentioned in the gospel of John. And in fact, this is the first time it's mentioned here in the Gospel of John. But what is eternal life? Jesus said it in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
when we are in heaven, we will be learning more and more and more about our lovely Savior, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says it means literally life of the age to come. It refers, therefore, to resurrection and heavenly existence in perfect glory and holiness. In its essence, eternal life is a believer's participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him, as Romans chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. Well, Cleon Rogers, Jr., and the third said this. They said, eternal life is a life of the age to come, which is gained by faith, cannot be destroyed, and is a present possession of the one who believes. So no matter what trouble and trials you're going through this morning or upcoming this week, remember that you have what? Eternal life. And no one will be able to take that away from you, no matter what happens in your life. And that's the theme of the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, it says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, le- by believing you may have life in his name. So in the same way, if a sinner looks in faith to Christ alone and him being lifted up on the cross, believe that he died on the cross for his sins, he will have eternal life. In verse 16, we, we come to a very popular and magnificent verse in the Bible. Verse 16. And we all know this verse, and hopefully, children, you're reciting this verse, reciting to your, your parents after the lesson today. But it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One quote says this about John 3.16, It is the greatest text and the greatest gift. Isn't that great? The greatest text and the greatest gift. For some of you, it's a favorite verse. For some of you, it's a verse that someone used to witness to you, for you to come to Christ. For some of you, you use it when you witness to unbelievers. And for some, they hold up a sign with this verse at a football game, right? At least they used to, with John 3.16 there, right? For some, they use it at church evangelism events. And for some of you children, you learn this verse in Awana, right? So again, make sure you recite this verse to your parents. But I love the verse. In verse 16, it says, For God so intensely... The word so speaks about intense love for people. God so intensely loved the people in the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them, to make payment for their sins. If one believes this, they will be saved. The phrase that he gave points to the grace shown by God to sinners by giving us Jesus Christ, his most indescribable gift, as 2 Corinthians 9:15 says, to die for us on the cross. And the word there, begotten, means unique, only one of this kind. So the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is unique. He is the only Son whom God the Father gave as a sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. J.C. Ryle says Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's death is life. Now, John is not presenting universal salvation here, but salvation of those who believe by faith in Christ alone for salvation. So what is the result of people not believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Well, they will perish. Verse 16 says they will perish, which means to receive God's judgment and eventually be sent to the lake of fire as described in Revelation 21, verse 10. That's why the impetus is on us 
The urgency is there to continue to share the gospel. Give out tracts. Ask God for divine appointments so you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want people to be judged by God. We don't want people going to hell. We want people to have eternal life. Give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. A true test of faith in Christ is obedience to his word. As one commentator said, real faith obeys. Real faith in Christ obeys his commandments. So what is a clear and undisputed message from God to sinners? Well, you must believe in the Christ of the cross. More specifically, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins, was buried, and he rose again on the third day. If a person doesn't do that, as verses 17 and 18 says, they will be judged by God. Now, here's kind of a spoiler alert. Uh, have you ever asked yourself what happened, ever happened to Nicodemus? Whatever happened to Nicodemus? And some of you probably know. And as you study and make your way through, through the Gospel of, of John, you will notice that Nicodemus the one, uh, was the one who, before the religious leaders, he defended Jesus, remember? In John chapter 7, verse 50. And Nicodemus, being a rich man, purchased about 100 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and aloe to anoint the body of Jesus after he was crucified and died. He believed and became a disciple of Jesus Christ, as John chapter 19, verse 39 tells us. And by the way, there was another influential member of the Sanhedrin. Do you know who that was, who was with Nicodemus? Joseph of Arimathea, also part of the Sanhedrin. When John chapter 19, verse 40, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus after wrapping, after his crucifixion and bound it in linen, linen wrapping. So they both became believers of Jesus Christ. When closing, I just want to read this uh, quote from Pastor Mark Jones. He says, Jesus, the good shepherd, gave himself for us. He did not offer riches as he could have done, not even all the riches of the universe, and said he offered himself, which was more precious than anything else in the universe. Paul makes this clear, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We thank God for his marvelous grace, the Christ of the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to go through John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, to, to talk about regeneration and rebirth, or, but also, Father, to point us to the cross. The cross, the death of Christ, is our life. We thank you, Father, for that tremendous sacrifice that your Son, Jesus Christ, made on behalf of us, one in place of another. And I pray, Father, for those who may be here who may not know Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation that they were placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. We love you, Father, and we thank you, and we praise you. And please prepare our hearts now to hear the message from Pastor Milton. We love you, and thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.